This podcast was produced by ORFM Dunedin with support from New Zealand On the Air. Otago Access Radio, in partnership with Otago Polytech, brings you Blowing Bubbles. Blowing Bubbles brings you positive conversations with people in their bubbles around the world. How are people living their bubble lives? Working from home, keeping kids entertained and staying connected and getting exercise. And how are these things presenting us with the opportunities to find new ways of living? Every weekday, the Sustainable Lens team of Samuel Mann, Shan Gallagher and Mara Karatai reach out from their bubbles to chat with interesting and positive people around the world. Broadcast on Otago Access Radio 105.4 FM and streamed and podcast on oar.org.nz and sustainablelens.org. Bringing connection, joy, kindness and peace in the days ahead. Welcome to Blowing Bubbles, positive conversations with people in their bubbles, their safe spaces around the world. I'm Samuel Mann in Soyuz Bay, Dunedin, and I am joined from Fakatani by Mawera Karatai. Kia ora, Mawera. Kia ora, Sam. How's it going? It's going very well indeed. Now, you weren't here yesterday because you were still travelling back from somewhere, Tokoroa, I think it was. What were you doing there? Yes. Uh, Jack had a really cool day of mountain biking at Cougar Park. First time I'd ever ridden there, and um, it was I was mostly just cooking sausages and getting sunburned. That sounds like a pleasant way to spend the weekend. (laughs) Indeed. And who are we introducing today? It is my great privilege to introduce historian and professor Paul Moon. Paul, it is so wonderful to have you here today. Thank you for joining us. Thank you for having me. Kia ora, Paul. Where are you, Paul? In Auckland. Lockdown Central. Yeah. Is it wearing thin? Oh, I wore thin on day one, but um, we haven't had much of a choice. So. so we've been asking people how their bubble lives were. And of course, it's gotten complicated because there's been multiple bubble lives now and, and you're still in a kind of one. But let's go back to the start. How was your how was your first bubble life? Um, well, there was very little change, really. I mean, I'm, I'm sort of by inclination almost a recluse. So I, I, it wasn't really much of a, of a problem for me. Um, it was a bit of an adjustment for the rest of the family. And um, and, and it's been difficult for everyone, I imagine. But um, for me, I, I have a very heavy workload. So bubble or no bubble, I just plough through it. And you, uh, you, you, you teach at AUT? That's right. Yes, yes. And so that they went online straight away, didn't it? And stayed online for a long time. Yes, although fortunately, um, the history department at AUT has for about 10 years now had a whole lot of online papers. So it was seamless for us. We just, it was business as, as usual. Um, we've had a, a huge surge in enrollment since because um, people have seen this is, in a sense, the shape of things to come. Not completely, but to some extent anyway. And so you carried on working at home with the, the, the family at home. Is that what made it different? The the fact that you were sharing your home office with other people? That, that's, that's yeah, difference the best way to put it, I think. Yeah, we'll leave it at that. <laughs> so did, did you stay working at home or, or did you go back to the office after the after No, no, we, we weren't allowed into the office. No, we weren't allowed into the office um, unless it was some sort of emergency. So we had, well, not a premonition, but we had advanced warning that there'd be a lockdown. So we were able to take all our files and whatever else we needed with us. And so I, I took some with me. I had a big pile, piles all over the place and I just consolidated them into one space and, and um, set to work. 
And had you managed to keep all that stuff at home for this long lockdown that you've had? Yeah, um, it's probably about what's it seven or eight meters of of papers and shelves. So it's um, yeah, it's not going anywhere quickly. <laughs> and you've written more books than anybody else in the world. I'm quite sure of that. It feels that way. Yeah. <laughs> so have you been have you been writing over the last couple of years? Principally, that's yes, that that's taken up a big part of my time, um, and I think partly because of lockdown, there's been a renewed interest in reading. Certainly, sales have shown that. So that, coupled with the fact that New Zealand history is year after next is going to be a compulsory part of the secondary school curriculum, means that there's there's a there's a demand out there. So I've been trying to do my bit in that space. I read that. Earlier this year, you described it as a as a major step, but more recently, you said it's got had a worrying start. Uh, all sorts of problems with the curriculum. Um, one was the consultation process. Um, you've got to be concerned when you've got the Royal Society assembling some of the best historians in the country, who from all across the political spectrum, who look at this draft curriculum and say there are huge chunks missing. This is in the consultation period. And then when it comes to the final version, none of those concerns are addressed. Now, everyone's going to say, what about? That's the, the constant chorus you hear. What about this topic? Why haven't you included this? And so on. And that's that's the nature of history. You can't include everything. But women's history is almost invisible. Labor history isn't there. International history, economic history. And then you've got pre-colonial New Zealand history, the history of hapu and iwi from the first arrival to the point where Cook turns up. It's all been amputated. It's not there. And uh, I had a discussion with someone about this, and they said, oh, well, we, you know, there's no, no written records of that period. And that's actually not true. There aren't any contemporaneous written records, but the tribunal, Waitangi Tribunal, is overflowing with oral histories. Um, this stuff's been published. It's it's all over the place, huge quantities, and it's been ignored. And in a place like Auckland, where I live, you really have to understand that pre-European history to understand what's happening now in terms of Auckland Council, um, who has mana whenua status, how things like the Maunga are, are managed. You need to know that. And, and it's amazing that you can have a history curriculum which cuts off pre-European history in this country. I'm, I'm staggered by that, but... That's what's happened. I liked in the when you were celebrating the fact that the um, history curriculum was getting a, a rewrite. I like what was that quote you said? You said it's an history is an instruction manual for how the world works. Well, it is, and, and one of the problems with history is people. I mean, it's the most common criticism we get is why study history? It's already happened, and if you really believe that, you're ignoring. These, these incredible lessons about how to live, but you're also condemning your own life to the perpetual eternal present, that all that matters now is what's happening right now at this moment. Um, it's rather like, and there are people who live that way, people who on Facebook, Instagram, if they go out for a meal before they eat it, they take a photo of it and post it because what's happening now is what matters. Very few people do that after a month. They don't take a photo of their meal, then a month later post it because 
it's old then. So it's the, the perpetual now is, is how some people like to live. And of course, you do that at the cost of all this accumulated knowledge about how to deal with things. And Henry Kissinger, the, the American diplomat has and academic, has written a lot about this, that the mistakes countries make, and the reason why countries go to war so often is precisely because they don't look at what went wrong last time, or they don't look at what worked last time. So if you're not aware of, of these sorts of things, inevitably you're going to fall back into those same old habits and traps. I'm going to put on, first of the music choices, let's have Judy Collier, the boys from Rawani. <laughs> at the moment 
with everything that's going on, there's this really interesting thing happening where the anti-vax, anti-government movement has somehow managed to uh, draw in some of the sovereignty movement, but it's become really complex and a bit lost. And I'm struggling to understand that, how we as Māori have been drawn into this thing that seems to be driven by um, like these basically not anti-Māori movements, but certainly pro, um, pro Pākehā movements, maybe. I don't, I don't know how to say it in the right way. Mm. I think that's exactly what it is, and it's, it's really confusing. And I think the answer is that you can't make sense of it. You probably drive yourself mad if you try to get some rationale out of the whole thing. Um, but it does indicate that there is frustration among various groups and one of the things that frustrated people tend to do is congregate with other frustrated people um, there's a sense of strength in that and solace I suppose but one of the things that's also interesting about it is that New Zealand manifests this in a very different way so if you look at what's happening in Europe at the moment where there are riots and literally people getting shot over vaccine mandates uh, if you look at the United States and Britain over the last 50 years both those countries have had repeated and serious race riots, and we haven't. So there's something about New Zealand society that despite these periodic eruptions of discontent, we sort of managed so far, touch wood, to avoid going down that road where there's extreme violence. So maybe it's a good thing in a way in the sense that it's a sort of safety valve. It, it lets some of the steam off and people feel they've accomplished something. But you're right, then the message is very confused, and I don't think even all the participants fully understand it. Do you think that that will ever be a thing here, that, that violence that we see? There's certainly threats of it. I see that now, and, and that surprised me. I, I really didn't expect to ever see that become part of the way that we do things here. It's just not very Kiwi. And, mm -hmm. and, yet, and yet I see it now, but I also see that it's not really people from here that are driving that message as well. So... Is, is it social media? Is it is it just the way things are around the world and we're being influenced that? What do you reckon is causing it? Yeah, it's hard to know, isn't it? Um, uh, there's definitely an influence from social media because the way these things are organised is almost entirely through social media. There's no one sitting at a photocopier printing out leaflets to distribute. So social media is the means of organisation. It's also where the messages come from. And there's a, there's a degree of inspiration. You can see the different types of groups that have coagulated around this issue are similar to the types of groups who've got together in places like Australia and parts of Europe. So they represent groups that are what we could call nationalist groups, um, groups that are extremist in, in various views, conspiracy theorists, people concerned about um, loss of assets, loss of jobs, and the general state of anxiety that comes with something like COVID and the lockdowns and all the other things that have gone with it. And as soon as people's normal daily rhythms are disrupted, anxiety is a natural response. The, the, the challenge is how do you react to that? And everyone's different. I think it's risky when you say you should do this or you should behave like this because we're all made up psychologically in slightly different ways. And so we all manifest problems and anxieties in slightly different ways. But certainly I, I think in some cases what you see in some of these protests is really a cry for help. Are seeing in some of the protests the Tino Rangatiratanga flag? 
people are and, and people are talking about sovereignty in terms of not just the the, the country sovereignty or the, the the political sovereignty, but linking that to the bodily autonomy sovereignty. Have we seen that before, and, and, and will it damage those political movements? Well, we've certainly seen issues of sovereignty before in relation to the body. Um, abortion is a good example of that. that but that, um, that hasn't been linked to the cultural sovereignty. No, no, no. But that, that's certainly the manifestation of individual sovereignty, that I am entirely sovereign when it comes to my own body and what I choose to do with it. Ironically, the abortion argument that I'm, I'm allowed to, as a woman, have an abortion, that's my sovereign right, um, my body, my choice, the same argument's being used by anti-vaxxers. I'm allowed to deny vaccinations being put into my body, my body, my choice. So it's the same rationale. But you're right, this has become something a bit different because it's co-opted ideas of indigenous sovereignty. And that fits fairly uncomfortably. This idea that a medical issue is suddenly a historical, political, ethnic, cultural issue. Um, those, Those two don't fit very well. But people have been trying to jam that, that square peg into a round hole for the past several months. And it, it seems to get a bit of traction, but it also gets opposition. But the history of all these movements is they eventually fade out. It's almost 100% the case that all the heat and anger cools off and things go to some sort of normal or some sort of equilibrium afterwards. So they're, they're temporary in, in their manifestation, but how that influences things in the long term, who knows? One of the things that people are struggling with is the the lack of certainty. People are, are desperate to, to know what's going to to happen, and for for some of us, they think you know, we we think that that's a bit unlikely to happen in the face of a, a global pandemic, where certainty is not possible. But does history teach us anything about people coming to terms with that uncertainty, with that? ambiguity? Well, we're exceptional. The second half of the 20th century onwards is a sort of stability that our great-grandparents and every generation before that had no conception of, and they could not in their wildest of dreams have imagined that the lives would be the way they are now. So we've been living in a, in a sort of ab- abnormal degree of in terms of the history of the world. Um to give you an idea, there are some statistics out recently to do with infant mortality rates, infant mortality rates in the north of England in the 18th century. And it was something like for every 10 children born, only one would reach the age of five. So bearing your children was normal. Um, it's horrendous for us to think about that, but that was the norm for just about everyone. Just about every family would have had one child that died in infancy, but the majority of them in some parts of Britain died in infancy, the vast majority. Um, not knowing if you're going to be working next week, not knowing if you're going to eat. In, in 16th century Europe, every winter, roughly half the population went without food at some stage. So these sorts of uncertainties and lack of predictability was was par for the course until Recent times, we've sort of lulled ourselves into a sense that we're the best and we've finally overcome these things and on comes a virus to remind us that's not the case. The theme of our show is positive but not deluded. 
do you think that there is other historical precedents for having a, a sort of a positive mindset or is that just a thing that we've been talking about recently I mean, in those times you're talking about where, where where most of the babies died i assume that people somehow managed to have a, a positive view of life well they did and there's something about us and i don't understand where it comes from but even in in, in fairly sort of grim times we we can be positive and Part of that, I think, has to do with imagining something that's better than what is now. So if you look at your garden and it's full of weeds and so on, um, you might think, oh, that's not good. But for most people, if they look at their garden and it's got weeds growing everywhere, they think, well, I'm actually going to weed it. I'm going to do something to improve this. And that desire to improve and desire to achieve, um, well, the the achievement motive, for example, um, has been written about extensively. David McClelland was a theorist who dealt with that in the 60s. Um, ideas about modernization, progress, and improvement have been around since the 18th century. And they typify, if you like, a Western approach to living. Things have to get better. Technology has to get better. Um, entertainment, everything has to be an improvement. We look back and we go, gosh, remember back in the 70s how how terrible it was. We We didn't have mobile phones. If you wanted to go out, you had to phone someone beforehand. Hopefully they weren't engaged and you had to arrange things. Once you're out, maybe go to a phone box and hope that they're still home. These sort of things. We sort of see ourselves as having advanced in that respect. But for a lot of cultures, that's not the case. Um, In fact, for most of history, um, the type of technological change that, that gives the impression of improvement wasn't around. So again, go back 600 years anywhere on earth, the chances are that the technology that your grandparents had when they were kids will be the identical technology that your grandchildren will have. There's no change. There's no expectation of technological change. So people look to improvement in other ways, and it might be religious improvement, a sort of a spiritual improvement. Um, it might be in a sense of cultural understanding or whatever. But I think late 20th century society, and pretty much around the world now, has has seen technological process, progress as being analogous with improvement and that's not necessarily the case and you can see that too in in very high rates of of mental health problems particularly suicide in in very advanced countries there's an old saying that um, if you're if you're hungry you only have one problem and if you're not hungry you have hundreds of problems and there's a lot of truth to that, that, you know, if, if, you, if you're in a poorer condition, um, sometimes you don't have the, the luxury of worrying about how good your Wi-Fi connection is. You, you know, you've got more immediate issues to deal with. I wonder if we've become lazy at having to be positive because we haven't had to work at it because things, as you say, over the last few years have just been getting better, technological and health and all those sorts of things. And now that's challenged, we're a bit lost because the thing we've relied on has been pulled out from under us. Absolutely. And it's in hundreds of almost imperceptibly small ways. Um, you, you may remember if you're watching a television show, say in the 1980s, it was a show that everyone watched. Then people during the advertisement break would rush to make a cup of tea or go to the toilet or whatever and rush back in time for the program to recommence because you may not see it again for a couple of years. So you get one chance at watching it. Um, and that, in a way, that sort of sense of 
communal watching, but also the sense that you have to participate in something as basic as watching a TV program has gone now. You can just pause, whatever, you can download it. It's not a problem. So you're right, there's no effort involved in gratification, and it therefore, to some extent, diminishes the effect of the gratification. If you don't have to put any effort into enjoying a, a movie, or you don't have to go out to watch it, uh, it becomes less of an occasion, less of something to accomplish and something that's just spoon-fed to you. The problem with that, of course, is that you get diminishing marginal returns on satisfaction, diminishing utility, as economists call it. And so every it's, it's rather like the old KFC problem. If you have a bucket of KFC, KFC you, you have the first piece of chicken and your satisfaction levels are 10 out of 10 or 11 out of 10. Um, but as you get into sort of piece number seven or eight, you start to diminish the satisfaction. So every additional unit you consume, the satisfaction diminishes to the point we actually get inverse satisfaction. So if you're onto piece 13 or 14, um, you're feeling quite ill at that point. So it's the same product, but the extent of consumption actually has a, a sort of an unusual curve in terms of individual satisfaction, and that diminishes how we enjoy things. Maybe this dis- period of disruption will reset that and we'll back up, be back up to the, the 11 out of 10 when we get back to a new normal, whatever that might be. It'll remind us to enjoy stuff. Possibly not. I don't think so. I think what because what we see happening in the past is that people are eager to get over bad experiences. And I think our, our brains are wired to do that. So we'll, we'll go straight back to the bad patterns. And we have to. I mean, psychologically, it's crucial that we we're able to wrap up bad memories and cotton wool and to an extent, take take away the sharp edges. Um, if you can imagine, for example, you're you're driving along the road with your partner one one rainy night. There's no cell phone coverage. You get a flat tire, and you get out and you, you get totally soaked and muddy, changing the tire, and you maybe skin your knuckles or something. And you're very frustrated. You hop back in the car, and the first thing your partner says to you is, "You know, one day we'll look back at this and laugh." And um, you restrain yourself at that point because you're feeling very angry. But it's true. A year later, you do look back on it and laugh. Now, the interesting thing about that is that it's the same event that you recall, but how could you be angry at the time and laugh about it later on? And the thing is that our brains are designed to prevent the recollection of bad events traumatizing us. Because if we didn't do that, we'd have a very, very tough life where every time we remember something, we go back to the pain of that experience at that point in time. And so I think the same thing will apply with this once we sort of get back to whatever normality looks like. We'll quickly forget the bad bits. In fact, people have already done this. If you look at the lockdowns from last year, they say, oh, actually, it was great. Well, it wasn't great. Um, but people are already reshaping the their idea of history. And this is where history and memory sort of clash because history recalls something quite different from what our memory does. Uh, you need to take a break. If I had Rocky Horror lined up to play, I would play that, thinking about having a... Car breaking down and getting wet and having a bad experience, but I haven't, so we're going to listen to Tahu instead. Bubble Sprite of the Forest of Orokadui, Dunedin's favourite goddess, Tahu Mackenzie. Kia ora koutou, nāmei I hope you're all having the best day, beautiful superstars and your beloved universes. I really hope, wherever you are, whatever's happening around you, this journey that 
we were on together is proving to be very rewarding, very sustaining and illuminating for you more and more each day who you are. The triumph of nature's art, perfect, unique and here making things better, thank you. Now I know for all of us over nearly two years we had to deal with many trials due to this global pandemic and even before that we've had so much in our lives we've all had to overcome and as a species of course we are so good at triumphing over even the hardest time of adversity we are so good at adapting and finding new ways to be do see feel to help us and one another get through these difficult times together I know for me being part of the show has been immensely helpful for me and having the opportunity to recalibrate and reframe, refocus my thoughts. All of these things are immensely helpful. So thank you to Sam and the whole Blown Bubble team for having me and thank all of you, your bubbles, for allowing me to have this time with you. I know that for many of us at the moment things are changing and this can be an uncomfortable process. However, it's so important to remember that life is always changing and change constantly surrounds us in different forms. As we grow, we change. As all life grows, it changes. Reveals new parts of itself coming out into the light and new parts of itself, new colours, new ways of moving, new foliage, new feathers, new flowers, all these things. And in many ways, we are doing this too. So I really hope for you, whatever change is taking place around you or within you, that you can see it as part of a natural process that unites us with all life. And I really hope that whatever change is happening around you right now, externally, that again that can be a reflection of being part of the living world. We change again, constantly surrounds us and shows us new ways that things can be. I really hope for you at the moment you're seeing some new ways in which you want your life to be. And you're envisioning a future for yourself that feels very supportive of who you are. And I really hope at this time your wonderful creative consciousness is helping you to formulate plans and strategies to map out the road ahead, to see where you're going and look forward to it. It's an exciting new journey. And I really hope that for you today... You can really enjoy looking around and appreciating all of the little shifts and changes that are happening as we go closer and closer to the light, to the summer, the heat, the warmth. Enjoy more and more time outside, enjoying those changes. And I look forward to talking to you again soon. Thanks, Sarge. You're listening to Blowing Bubbles. We're talking with Paul Moon. Paul, we've seen lots of changes in society over the last couple of years. What do you think is going to stick? And perhaps more importantly, what do you hope will stick? 
I don't think anything will stick. Um, the changes seem to be that if you look at the term progressive, for example, people identify themselves as being progressive. It's almost like change for its own sake. And the way to test that is just ask a progressive, what's the end result? What's the society you really want? And they might describe it as being rights for this group and that group and everyone free to do whatever they want. But that's only a temporary state because the nature of progressivism is that it's constantly evolving, that things that we believe at the moment to be wrong will become tolerated, accepted, and um, then become part of mainstream, and then there'll be something else. And so it's really a sort of, I don't think anything's certain, um, and it's a sort of like an endless progression into something. People have variously called the, the lockdowns a, a rahui, a reset. What do you hope, what what do you think is, is going to happen? Is it a a return to a business as usual? Is it a, a regeneration? Or is, is I think you're just saying that it's probably going to go back to, to what it was. Well, the answer lies in the fact that there's a whole lot of elements in society that are like pressure points. They push you in different directions. They might be financial, social, cultural, moral, religious, whatever. And they all operate in different people in different ways. But what they all always do, and this has been the case throughout all of history, is they reach an equilibrium point. So all the pressures in life and all the things that, not necessarily pressures, but it draw us in certain directions, reach an equilibrium point. And the equilibrium point is what suits us individually the best. So the answer to the question is, look at yourselves and you say, well, what do I want life to be like after all this is over? And it might be quite idealistic. But then you ask yourself the second question, what will life be like for me once all this is over? pretty much the same as it was before. And yes, there'll be adjustments. It might be face masks or um, access codes or whatever else. But the fundamentals are going to be the same because there's been nothing to disrupt that. There's been no reason to change that. There's been no reason, for example, people for people to say, well, we need a, a, whatever a fairer society is, how you define that, we need that. There's no impetus for that because by, by people wanting normality, they're saying the old model, which is the norm, is the equilibrium we aspire to. And... Was that fair? Probably not, but that's where we will want to go. So I think it's a bit utopian for some people to talk about, you know, this is a reset and it's going to be this this great new thing. Because one of the things about any sort of social change is that you don't, they're not preceded usually by that sort of thinking. They, they sort of appear almost out of nowhere. And they appear because of quite extreme circumstances. And despite how widespread this COVID thing is, it's not particularly extreme. Um, it's It's nothing like this sort of, um, epidemics that existed in previous centuries. So we don't have, for example, bodies piling up on the street and people covered in, in, in pus and infections and being consumed by flies while they're still alive. We don't have that. We don't have um, a third of the population dying. So it's, it's, it's nothing as dramatic as that. And even those major epidemics in the past, Black Death is a good example, didn't really bring about much in the way of social change. In fact, they had the opposite effect because when people are scared, they what do they do? They cower, they protect themselves. And so there's almost a new age of conservatism that, that comes through as a result of that, that we don't want change because we've had enough change for the last two years. Let's go back to something that's a bit more certain. Do you think that in a few years' time, whatever it takes for it to be history, although you can, you can talk about contemporary history now, I'm pretty sure you can, are we going to see fingerprints of this time that that people will look back and say, you know, 
that was a moment in history? There'll be some people who'll dramatise it and they'll say, they'll tell their grandchildren years to come, I lived through the COVID epidemic. You know, it's almost like a badge of honour. Well, good for you. Um, We won't see, well, we will see fingerprints, but they won't be ours because we already are misremembering what happened. So, and I've talked to a few people about the recollections of last year's um, lockdown, the first one. And generally, it's quite good. It was novelty. It was, you know, it was a lot of fun. Um, you got to do a lot of Zoom calls, didn't have to go to work, all this sort of thing. Um, some people's experiences much, much worse, of course, but that was the recollection. What's, I've only talked to about 30 or 40 people about this, but one thing, one thing they've all missed out, all of them, is that announcement when the first lockdown started, the sense of fear. Because, and I... I keep a diary and I record every day things that happen. And I, I remember looking back at that. I remember people at work were really genuinely anxious because no one knew what would happen. There were mentions made by scientific experts that 80, 100,000 people in New Zealand might die from this. And there was a sense of panic and people were genuinely, I remember talking to some people on the phone saying, look, we, you know, we hope we see you again. Um, actually, knowing who they are, they probably didn't mean it, but... <laughs> <laughs> but it was generally that sense that, um, you know, we, not everyone will come out of this alive. Now, that, that's been forgotten. And so already the, the process of re-memorizing the past has affected that. So the first lockdown was great. The second one was boring. Um, but we got through it. And that, that's, that's unfortunately the problem was with memories, which is why we need history to sort of remind us that there are a lot of sharp edges in this. So... Um, one of the things that gets forgotten very quickly is in the first lockdown, there were major issues with people's mental health. Um, but the, again, the problem for history is that not these things don't necessarily leave a big imprint on the historical record. So popular perception wins the day. Historical record, however thin it is, reveals something that's a bit different and a bit starker.
children's children wearing the white plume. So take me for the sins of these sad islands. The wave still breaks on the rock of Rohotu. And when you taste the pepper on your pudding, think when you taste the sugar in your soup. is Tim Finn and Herbs, Perry Harker, Moera. Paul, if, um, usually when we have someone come on here, I, I say to them, if I was the magic fairy who could grant you one wish to change something in the world right now that would make life better for us, especially for our rangatahi, um, who have so many struggles ahead of them. But I'll ask you a different question, and that is, if you could go back 100 years, what would you change? that would improve life for our rangatahi today? Certainly <laughs> the simple question till the end. <laughs> um, well, I don't think there's, there's one single thing that would make much of a difference in that area. Um, I think one of the things now that matters is that there are some slightly disturbing presentations and representations about youth, particularly Māori youth. Um, Māori youth, uh, in fact, if you mention the name Māori youth, it's almost analogous with, well, actually compared with um, notions of failure, of yes. all sorts of other things. Now, the fact is that the vast majority of our are succeeding at school. Um, there are some areas in the tertiary system where they're outperforming every other group. So although the news seems to be bad, there's, there's so much good, there's so much accomplishment that's taking place. Um, the other thing, too, is that there's a sort of a tension between traditionalism and non-traditionalism, if you like. And so one of the other things that might be useful changing over the past perhaps few decades is this idea that, that Maori culture is something that's locked in a sort of a 19th century mould. It's sort of been snap frozen and, and that's all it is. Because the fact is that if, if you ask most people about what Maori culture is, it will be haka, poi, um, waiata, that sort of thing, and uh, noho marae. Imagine if you ask Pākehā what Pākehā culture is, would people say, oh, it's, it's, it's a Charles Dickens-type world? No, of course not. So the problem is that, that 
the Maori culture seems to be locked in this time warp. Whereas, in fact, if you look at um, Maori poets, musicians, novelists, and so on, it's very much cutting edge stuff. So I think shifting perceptions would be useful. I think we've got into very lazy ways of looking at what constitutes different groups in the country. And we tend to focus, and this is a, a thing about use of te reo, which is pro- problematic at times. For example, if you look at um, kainga ora or, or Oranga Tamariki, both Māori names to describe agencies that deal with deprivation in some way, so housing and abused children and so on. Um, in fact, there was an Oranga Tamariki leaflet I got a couple of years ago that had a whole lot of Māori children on the front of it. And I thought, mm, that's just, again, reinforcing the, the, and stigmatising the ethnic group with a certain sort of crime. We talk about um, Māori child abuse, for example, and that's something I would change too, because linking a criminal action with an ethnic group is, I, I can't get my head around that. I mean, imagine if we talked about um, Pākehā embezzlement or whatever else. We don't, because the idea of linking, as I say, an ethnic group with a particular category of criminal offence is horrendous, and yet it happens all the time. And so those sorts of things, changing perceptions about what constitutes success, how certain groups that are categorised as being unsuccessful, in fact, are very successful, is important because, um, and I, I know that there's there's a case of an educationist was telling me about this the other day of um, Maori children coming back home from school and being told, well, you know, we're not going to amount to much because, you know, there's so much against us, there's so much racism in the system and so on. And of course, there's racism everywhere, but um, what a horrible message to tell children that you're not going to amount to anything because the odds are stacked against you. The odds might be stacked against you, but that's all the more reason to amount to something. And so I think just changing how people see things is important. Uh, recently, the Bay of Plenty uh, district, the, our local DHB, the Bay of Plenty DHB, uh, put out a COVID brochure, and the front page of the COVID brochure was a picture of a virus with a mutter order. That's right. And, and, a, and a white-skinned farmer kicking the virus. And it was like mm. the, it was horrendous. The the imagery, the um, the picture that it painted, the psychology behind it was absolutely mm-hmm. horrendous. And our and I know from the work that I do with our youth here in the Eastern Bay, particularly in particularly in the driver licensing space at the moment for me, um, I'm working with kids who really feel like the system has decided they will fail and therefore just never put the energy into making yep. sure they didn't. And so the, mm. the but these kids, once you get past that, strip all that away and actually say, oh, I believe in you. We can do this. Let's do this thing. Get a driver's license. Once they've got their driver's license, immediately that perception perception has changed and they can see a future for themselves through that one action of achieving at something that they had been told they probably wouldn't achieve at. How Absolutely. Much- and that, that's so true. And I think a lot of, a lot of academics... Um, really are guilty in this area because they, they go on and on about um, poor Māori achievement and so on. It's actually not even, and this is the other problem, that you know, you're know you identifying it as, as an ethnic problem. Well, it's not. It's got nothing to do with the fact of what your culture is. It's got to do with the fact that, you know, and you can say this for all groups all around the world, it's got to do with the fact that your socioeconomic position is not very good. Um, there, there was some research done in, in Britain um, around this, and they found that of all the ethnic groups in Britain, the people at the top tended to be white English people. And they went through the list and it went down um, some Asian groups, Indian, Pakistani, black, and so on. 
At the very bottom, though, were white English people. At the very, very bottom. And it's, and, you know, who would have thought? Um, why is that? It's because they're in the socioeconomic position, particularly in parts of the north of England, um, which led to those sorts of poor outcomes. It wasn't culture-based. Um, if you look at income levels in, in the United States, um, white Americans, I think, are either fourth or fifth in terms of the highest income group by ethnicity. So there are four other ethnicities, three other ethnicities above them in terms of um, average earnings. So the thing is that that this this binary of parking on everyone else, where parking is successful, everyone else isn't, isn't reflected in evidence. And also it, it becomes, if you if you keep hammering it enough, an impediment. If I belong to a group and someone said, well, your group you know, fails at this and the system works against you and so on, well, after a while, I don't know how much hammering I'd endure. I'd go, maybe that's true. Maybe I should just give up. Maybe this isn't for me. Maybe education is for someone else, but not me. And that does happen. Um, what a reckless message to put out there. Um, there are much better ways of dealing with things. And um, I, I know my own family, um, my mother came to New Zealand when she was in her 20s and didn't speak a word of English. And um, her brothers and sisters came, her, actually uh, one of her brothers and one of her sisters came as, as refugees. And they had little in the way of education, no English, no money, no contacts, nothing. And they all did exceptionally well um, because they just didn't listen to the message that, you know, I mean, they put up a lot of nonsense in the, in, in the years, but um, they were just committed to being successful in spite of their circumstances rather than sort of letting their circumstances sink them. And that's the same story of immigrant groups around the world. They tend to outperform longer standing residents of a country because they have that view that yes we've got all these odds against us but we and that's the sort of in a way the sentiment to capture i have got some questions to end the show and i'm going to insist on squeezing them in but we haven't got much time so we shall have to rattle through them paul what is the biggest success you've had in the last year or so um well i, I suppose i i don't know i mean i've, I've written a book um in terms of work-wise, yeah, I've written a book. That that's a, a big undertaking. I don't sort of see things in, in terms of success or anything like that. It's just I just work. And that's it. What's your uh, superpower? Sausage factory. Uh, <laughs> hesitation. <laughs> I hesitate a lot. Do you consider yourself to be an activist? No, no, no. Nothing active about me at all. <laughs> so, what motivates you? What gets you out of bed in the morning? Um, I have an anxiety if I don't achieve something. I, I get I don't have a single day um, where I'm not doing something research-wise, writing-wise, not a single day. And what's the biggest challenge or opportunity that you're looking forward to in the next year or so? Um, well, challenge, um, it's really difficult to say. Uh, there's enough evil on one day, as they say. So, you know, anticipating anything beyond one day is difficult. And I, I don't have plans or anything. I, I I have whatever I'm doing at the moment. That's my project and I work away at it. But I don't have a, a grand vision or scheme or anything like that. I never have. It's just whatever happens, happens. And hopefully I'm flexible enough to adapt to it. You're not like J.K. Rowling with the next seven books arriving perfectly formed. No, no, goodness, no. <laughs> the opposite <laughs> in every respect. <laughs> And lastly, do you have any advice for our listeners? Oh, don't take advice from me. I think that would be the best <laughs> advice. No, I'm the, I'm the last person you'd listen to, really. Um, no, I think a lot smarter people out there, they can make their own own decisions. Thank you for that. Mawira? Well, um, 
there, you know, when over this academic journey of mine, over 20 odd years of learning and writing, and, and I've just come across your work so many times, and I value and appreciate the time that you've taken to make the world make sense for people like me and others who have read your work. You, that's what you do. You make things make sense. And it is such a gift. And I really appreciate that. And just thank you for the work that you've done and for the work that you're going to do and for committing your life to doing it, really. It's a it's a, a real privilege to get to talk to you today. Thanks for joining us. Oh, thank you very much. That's very kind of you. And thanks for, for listening to me. Gosh, it's, it's very, very kind. Thank you. with people in their bubbles, their safe spaces around the world. Brought to you by the Sustainable Lens Team, which is brought to you by Otago Polytechnic. We're broadcast on Otago Access Radio every weekday afternoon at 3 and streamed and podcast on oar.org.nz. You can find us on Facebook and subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. We had a contribution today from Tahu McKenzie. This is Golden Horse, maybe, maybe tomorrow. tomorrow. I'm Sammy Lane and Bay with Mwera Karatai in Fakatane. And from Auckland, we've been joined by Paul Moon. That was Blowing Bubbles. We hope you enjoyed the show. This podcast was produced by ORFM Dunedin with support from New Zealand On the Air.